Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Tonight on The Readout. These are human beings who were deprived of basic human rights. To the people who find themselves, these wonderful people who find themselves plane wrecked on our island, I have a message for all of them. You are not alone. We have your backs. The grotesque and cynical politics behind the Florida governor's migrant stunt. And just like the racist reverse freedom rides of the 1960s, these migrants were lied to every step of the way, so DeSantis could own the libs. Also tonight, new reporting from the Washington Post on how Trump's team grossly mischaracterized the nature of the documents that he was keeping at Mar-a-Lago when the National Archives first asked for them back. And what a way to end the week. Fresh from her triumphant victory at the Emmy Awards, actress Shirley Ralph from Abbott Elementary joins me tonight. But we begin with the Freedom Riders, the group of white and black civil rights activists who rode buses across the South in 1961 with the goal of integrating public transportation and bus terminals. One of the original 13 Freedom Riders was the late, great John, Congressman John Lewis. It was a bold act of resistance to challenge the nation's segregation laws, and the riders encountered violence, beatings, and jail time. The very first ride, was firebombed by a white mob in Alabama. The rides, however, would go on to transform America, setting the stage for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Change is often met with resistance, which is why the next year, white segregationists concocted a viciously racist plan, offering black people one-way tickets to the North or to the West with the promise of a better life. These bus trips were dubbed Reverse freedom rides. Here's Betty Williams on how her mother was lured onto one of them in 1962. My mother was told she was going to have better everything. She was going to have a job and, and she was going to be able to support her family and her children was going to be able to get an education, you know, be able to go to school. You know, that alone was not the truth. Betty's mother was Layla Mae Williams of Arkansas. And... Those weren't the only lies that she was told. The segregationists promised Williams a presidential welcome in Hyannis, Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Here she is. Notice her outfit, the dress, a triple string of pearls, a white hat. The outfit that she changed into because she was told President John F. Kennedy would be greeting her upon arrival. When she arrived, he wasn't there. There was no job or housing. Nothing. Southern segregationists hatched this plan to be cruel, for certain, but also to retaliate against Northern liberals who they believed would be unable to accommodate their new Black residents. It would expose them as hypocrites. This was how owning the libs looked in 1962. 
the Northern Liberals and the NAACP, Urban League, and people like that especially. They have been crying the uh, sing-song in behalf of the Negroes throughout the nation. And, of course, now when it comes time for them to put up or shut up, they have shut up. That was George Singleman, a reverse freedom, or reverse freedom rights organizer 60 years ago, but sounding, you know, almost exactly like, well, a modern-day Republican using people, human lives as pawns to make a political, and let's face it, a racist point. Sending people of color fleeing political and economic turmoil to the North to stick it to progressive policies. Where have we seen that before? Oh, right. In every headline that we've seen for the past two days. In what's being called an inhumane political stunt, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sent plane loads of mostly Venezuelan asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard on Wednesday. The migrants came from Texas, landing without warning on the island south of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Texas and Massachusetts are states that Florida Governor DeSantis does not currently govern. But DeSantis is central to this spectacle, telling the Republican Party's top donors last weekend that he was considering transporting migrants to places like Martha's Vineyard. The plan was met with thunderous applause. Migrants in the group told the Miami Herald that they agreed to fly to Massachusetts on the promise of jobs and assistance, but didn't realize that they were bound for Martha's Vineyard. Three migrants told NPR that a woman named Perla approached them outside a shelter in San Antonio and lured them into boarding a plane, saying that they would be flown to Boston where they could get expedited work papers. She provided them with food and Perla offered us help, one person said, help that never arrived. According to attorneys, no one on the island knew they were coming, leaving locals to scramble to meet their needs. Immigration attorneys are now working around the clock to understand their legal situations. Here is what one of them revealed last night. They were lied to again and again and fraudulently induced to board the planes. They were told there was a surprise present for them and that there would be jobs and housing awaiting for them when they arrived. This was obviously a sadistic lie. Joining me now is Democratic Florida State Representative Anna Escamani, Glenn Kirshner, MSNBC legal analyst and a former federal prosecutor, and Cristina Londonio Rooney, Telemundo senior Washington correspondent. And Cristina, I know that you are not on Martha's Vineyard, but not not far away. And I know that you've talked with some of these uh, migrants. So I want to start with the, the part I think that uh, for, for, for me anyway, that is that is interesting to get to the bottom of is the Texas portion of it. Um, the people that you spoke with. Did their journey originate in Texas? And did they explain to you how they got from Texas to Florida before being flown to Massachusetts? Yes, they did, Joy. Um, good evening. They told me that they were in Texas. They were kicked out of a shelter because they started charging them $85 a day. So they got kicked out and a woman approached them and told them that she would help them out. They move to a hotel and one moment to the next, she tells them, get on these buses. I am going to help you out. This is what they said to me. They were driven to an airport, saw the planes and were told to get on flights because they were going to be given shelter. They were going to get food, including prepaid credit cards. They were they were even going to get a surprise on the plane and they were going to have a chance at starting a new life. Some of them say that the plane, the two flights, it was two flights. 
they stopped in Florida briefly. Even um, Florida Governor DeSantis recognized that those flights stopped in Florida, and then they came to uh, Martha's Vineyard. And, and just to be clear, the people that you spoke with, they're mostly Venezuelan and Colombian. And I just to clarify, you're in Cape Cod, where the migrants are now. They've been moved to Cape Cod, and that's where you are. Are, had these um, families presented themselves as asylum seekers in Texas? Yes, they had. And that's one of the things that they're very adamant about. They are angry that they're being called undocumented immigrants or illegals, that they can't stand the word, because they say as soon as they got to the United States, they turned themselves in to immigration officials. They were given paroles. We saw the documents that they have. So they're they're here in a legal fighting for legal status, and they're trying to do it the right way. And, and one more question. Um, did this woman who, who we've just been told the name Perla, Perla is the name that we've been given. Did they mention that this woman showed them any form of ID um, to identify what organization she might have been with? They didn't mention her name to me. Um, they did not know any organizations. They say that they were gullible. They were vulnerable. They were hungry. They didn't have money. They're at the border and somebody is offering, offering them a flight out. They're offering them jobs, security, shelter for their children. So they decided to take the opportunity. They were put in a hotel. They were fed. So they saw these promises coming true. So that's why they decided to follow her. All of them, not a single one of them told me that they knew they were coming to Massachusetts. Not a single one of them told me that they knew what Martha's Vineyard was. They said they couldn't even locate it in the map and they didn't even know it existed. Christina Londonio Rooney, excellent reporting. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. OK, I want to turn to you, uh, Anna Escamani. Um, you heard all of that. Um, you are a state representative, a government representative of the state of Florida. What you heard there sounds to me like a story that was about a Texas a group of people who presented themselves legally in Texas as un, uh, as immigrants, not as undocumented people, but as asylum seekers, did everything they were supposed to do and were taken through Florida. Is there anything in the law that was passed in Florida that allocated $12 million to do these removals that says that Texas asylum seekers may be moved using Florida money because $12 million was ad, 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 allocated for this and $615,000 per the Miami Herald were spent on these flights. That is about $12,300 per migrant. Well, Joy, first of all, I am filled with righteous anger about this action by Governor Ron DeSantis. And in the state budget, we fought to remove these dollars that Republicans added in an effort to pursue their anti-immigrant and candidly, just their political partisan agenda to continuously pivot blame of real problems onto the backs of immigrants. There is absolutely no reason why Governor Ron DeSantis should be doing this to protect or secure Florida, especially when we're talking about asylum seekers in a different state. And so it is right. unbelievable that Governor Ron DeSantis would do this, but also lure and lie to people in a different state to get into a bus so he can just pursue his greater political ambitions to the harm of vulnerable communities, including children. Now, let me I'm going to play. Donald Trump had this idea first uh, just to, to play this. This is back um, in 2019. This is what Donald Trump had to say, but that he wanted to do. 
They want more people in their sanctuary cities. Well, we'll give them more people. We can give them a lot. We can give them an unlimited supply. And let's see if they're so happy. They say we have open arms. They're always saying they have open arms. Let's see if they have open arms. Glenn, um, that is what Donald Trump wanted to do. He wound up instead basically taking uh, children um, from their parents, some who were breastfeeding children, and moving them around the country, which was despicable and gross. But technically, that was in the federal purview. This is now a state that appears to have extracted migrants from a different state and brought them through Florida and then used this law. Can you put this law back up? This is two, again, um, uh, downtown Sterling Brown, my, my director, um, that says the pay, that this allowed, according to their <clears throat> law, the transport of unauthorized aliens from the state to other parts of the country. These were Texas, people who were in Texas. Nikki Freed, who's the agricultural commissioner in the state, has called it human trafficking. How do you see it? You know, Joy, I would call it something even simpler. I would call it kidnapping by inveiglement. Now, inveiglement is a word that we don't often hear, but it is a federal crime. It's 18 United States Code 1201. You know, I never go anywhere without my big, ugly blue book of federal laws, the United States Code, and I've got it right here. And the statute, the federal statute says, whoever unlawfully seizes, confines, inveigles, or kidnap somebody and transports them across state lines is guilty of kidnapping by inveiglement. Fancy word. What does it mean? It means to lure, to lead astray, or to entice by false pretenses or deceitful means. Now, when I heard what Abbott and DeSantis were, were doing, it sounded like it might violate the kidnapping by inveiglement statute. What sealed the deal for me is when I heard some of these asylum seekers, some of these migrants say, we were promised food, shelter, support for 90 days, English lessons, help filling out work permits, and then they were dropped on Martha's Vineyard with nothing. That, to me, is enough evidence, adequate predication, to open a criminal investigation into federal kidnapping by inveiglement across state lines. Now, let me play what Governor Abbott said, because first he sort of sort of distanced himself a little bit, but he's been doing the same thing. Here's uh, Governor Abbott of Texas. I'm the former attorney general in Texas, as well as a former Texas Supreme Court justice. I know the law very well. And what we've done in the state of Texas is follow the law uh, to the T to make sure that everything that we've done uh, comports with the federal law. We receive written authorization by everybody that we transport, that they agree to exactly what we are doing. That, that does not sound, it doesn't sound like the Biden administration agrees with that, uh, Representative Eskamani, because the Biden administration is now discussing uh, a range of, of options, potentially litigation to respond to what these governors are doing. It's Ducey, DeSantis, and Abbott. But for the state legislature in Florida, was there anything in that bill that authorized $12 million to transport people from Florida who they considered to be unauthorized in Florida to take them from another state and then cooperate with that other state to move them promising gift cards, jobs, food, et cetera, as inducements to get people to agree to get on those flights. 
Absolutely not. But I want to add that the bill's original intent was already disgusting and unnecessary and politically motivated anti-immigrant. And as a daughter of immigrants, I have to remind my Republican colleagues every single day that we are a nation of immigrants and we should be welcoming those who are tired, hungry, yearning to be free, especially those from communist governments, which apparently my governor is, is so passionate about freedom. And yet here he is stripping away freedom from those who are seeking asylum from the very government that he supposedly opposes. And so this is not only breaking federal law, but it's just blatantly offensive. And it's something that every American should find unsettling. And the last question here, Glenn, is to you, because other they're do, they've been doing this repeatedly. This was they dropped people off in front of Vice President Kamala Harris's house. They've been doing this repeatedly. In your view, are these governors, is this a stunt or is this a, a potential crime? You, you laid it out the potential stunt. crime here, but who would yeah. be the who would be the person you'd prosecute for this? Uh, anybody who conspired to engage in this conduct to deceive people who were here seeking asylum, transport them across state lines, and then not follow through on the promises they made. You know, our law books are full of cases yeah. that have been affirmed on appeal where there has been kidnapping by inveiglement. And Abbott can brag about his bona fides and his positions all day long. But you know what he doesn't understand? The supremacy clause. Because if Texas mm. or Florida passes a law that violates the federal kidnapping statute, guess who wins? The feds. There you go. Uh, Florida State Representative Anna, es Anna Eskamani and Glenn Kirshner, thank you both very much. And up next, new reporting tonight uh, on, let's just say it, the lies that the Trump team told the National Archives about the documents that they stashed at Mar-a-Lago. Stay with us. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. To date, the government has recovered more than 11,000 documents, including more than 300 with classified markings from Donald Trump since he left office. While the twice impeached former president continues to deny any wrongdoing, new reporting tonight from The Washington Post shows how the Trump team grossly, and I do mean grossly, misinterpreted both the scale and the variety of government documents under, or and under ordinary civilian Donald Trump's control even earlier than we previously knew. The Post reports that the National Archives was told last year that Trump did not possess any classified materials and that he only had 12 boxes filled with news clippings. That's according to people familiar with the conversations. The Post writes, during a September 2021 phone call with top archives lawyer Gary Stern, Trump lawyer Pat Philbin offered reassuring news. 
Philbin said he had talked with former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who made the assertion about the dozen boxes of clippings the people familiar with the call said. Trump's team was aware of no other materials, Philbin said, relaying information he said he got from Meadows. As the Post points out, this shows that Trump's former chief of staff was more involved in communications with archive officials than previously known. Meanwhile, we are still awaiting a response from the Department of Justice to last night's ruling by Judge Eileen Cannon denying the agency's request for access to the classified documents seized at Mar-a-Lago and agreeing with Trump's legal team to appoint a special master. It's expected that the DOJ will appeal the judge's decision. Now, remember, the rule of law states that no one is above the law. Everyone is to be treated equally under the law and everyone is to be held accountable to the same laws. Well, that's not what this Trump appointed judge seemed to say in her ruling, writing, quote, with the principles of equity, that the principles of equity require the court to consider the specific context at issue. And that consideration is inherently impacted by the position formerly held by plaintiff, unquote. I mean, that, that sure does seem to contradict the oath that she took as a judge. And it is just one of several perplexing stances that she took in her ruling. Among them was the claim that there is no identifiable emergency or imminent disclosure of classified information arising from Trump's retention of the documents that belong to the government. How could she say that? Well, some of those documents had classified markings dealing with some of this country's most closely guarded secrets, including human source material, a.k.a. information about foreign nationals inside other countries who are working for us. This judge has now commanded our foreign intelligence services to wait around for two months before the DOJ can fully investigate what happened with those documents at Mar-a-Lago. What about the 48 empty folders labeled classified? Wouldn't it be in the interest of national security? I don't know, to be able to investigate what was inside them and where those documents wound up? Were they handed over? Are they still at Mar-a-Lago? Are they at another one of his properties? I mean, this sure sounds like an identifiable emergency to me. Joining me now. Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigative team. And Andrew, I, I, I mean, I say this a lot. I'm not a lawyer, but I can read. I mean, this 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 judge is essentially saying there's no problem. We can wait until late November. We have national security analysts on this network who are saying people are, are in the national security world are, are, are terrified about what could happen between now and November. We don't know where this material is. How can a member of the judicial branch command the executive branch to not look at documents it owns? So, Joy, um, reading her decision yesterday and reading her prior decision, it's like a greatest hits album. I mean, it's hard to know where to begin because there's so many things that are so wrong. Um, I personally think the thing you started with about her saying right out loud that she's going to give former President Trump extra credit and weight here, that violates her oath of office. Um, that require, I mean, it, it's so fundamentally serious. And then your second point is this is not something where it's like, okay, she violated her oath, but there's no real harm here. I mean, the, the amount of harm that she just cavalierly throws off is, I mean, it's, it's completely shocking. I've been in the intelligence community. It is beyond belief that she um, could take the position that she did. 
Um, and that's why I, you know, we're we are all sitting here on tenterhooks waiting to see uh, the Department of Justice to appeal. I'm confident that they will, and we'll see that uh, some at some point today. Uh, yeah, a couple questions. So question number one. Um, to go back just for a moment, let me reel back a little bit to the Mark Meadows piece. We now know that Mark Meadows, the, the Trump team was representing to the National Archives that all Trump had were 12 boxes of newspaper clippings. We don't know whether they knew that was a lie or whether they were being misinformed by Trump or et cetera. But that seems really important, right? That they're, that they're not, they're not being straight with the National Archives from the very beginning to the point where clearly the National Archives had to keep coming back and coming back and finally get a subpoena and get a judge to give them a subpoena, to give the FBI a subpoena. What do you make of that fact that it doesn't appear that everybody was being straight from the beginning? Does that indicate to you that maybe Trump wasn't being straight with Mark Meadows? So, Joy, this is how criminal investigations work. You know, we're getting to see it on the outside, but this is clearly Pat Philbin going, hey, I'm not going to jail over this. So Pat Philbin, right. the lawyer, is like, hey, that's what I was told, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I was told, and I believed it, but, you know, don't look at me, look at him. <laughs> well, now that hot potato is Mark Meadows has it, and he's Mark Meadows is going to have to decide, is he going to own it, or is it going to go to who told him that there were only newspaper clippings? At some point, let's get real. I mean, we're not dealing with an absentee landlord, I and mean, this is a micromanager over 18 months, where, meaning it's Donald Trump at the end of the day who's going to be holding yeah. this hot potato. And Mark Meadows is going to have to make a lot of decisions about which side he's going to be on. Does And we used to refer to that in the government as which side of the V do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the United <laughs> States side or do you want to be on the defendant side in the United States versus? Easy call. <laughs> Easy call. The special right. master, exactly. Raymond Deary, um, he's now called for a preliminary conference. So he wants them to appear before him on Tuesday, September 20th, at least that's soon, and direct him to submit letters outlining the matters they wish to discuss the conference, close of business Monday. Give me your level of trust here of this person, Mr. Deary, that he will expeditiously give the government back. I, I still am stunned that a, a set, you know, I thought that we had co-equal branches of government. I didn't realize the judiciary could say, you can't look at your own stuff. Sorry. FBI. I know, I know it's government stuff, but you can't look at it. But OK, what's your level of trust in what he's going to do? And also in the 11th Circuit, because there's a bunch of Trump judges on there, too. Yeah. So let's, the 11th Circuit, let's leave that to the side for the moment, because the one really good thing and a positive note um, for the viewers on a, you know, a Friday afternoon evening is we're really fortunate that Judge Cannon is a chicken and has decided that she's not going to roll up her sleeves and do her job and is going to subcontract that to Judge Deary. Because after all, she could have just decided, I'll do the review. I mean, but instead, <laughs> she has got another federal judge doing it. This is where, like, I know Judge Deary. Lots of people here know Judge Deary. Joy, I can tell you, you could not ask for a better selection. He is yeah. the epitome of what you want a judge to be. He is smart. He is fair. He has wonderful interpersonal skills, which I think is going to come in really handy in how he deals with Judge Cannon. Um, and I think he will be very good at making um, her understand sort of how to behave and sort of why he's making the decisions he's making. Um, so, yeah. you know, from the DOJ perspective, the good news is they know their backup is no matter what happens in the 11th Circuit, 
Um, you know, they should be able to prevail there, but judge Deary is somebody, you know, I, I always used to say what you want from a judge is when you're right, you'll win. And if you're wrong, Mm -hmm. you'll lose. And you know, that's all you can really expect. And you'll get that from judge Deary. I'm going to take it because I will take any good news at this point. Andrew Weissman, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping that up in a bow and taking it home. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. Have a great weekend. All right. Coming up, Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance has been awfully quiet on the campaign trail lately. I wonder why. His Democratic opponent, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, joins me next. Stay right there. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Ohio's J.D. Vance, the Peter Thiel-backed venture capitalist, would like you to think that he's running for the United States Senate. But I wouldn't blame you if you can't really tell. Vance has sort of vanished from the campaign trail and, according to reports, doesn't like to campaign on weekends, which tend to be the best time to campaign. Heck, he's not even in Ohio. He spent the past two days shaking down Republican donors in Florida. He's supposed to be back in the state tomorrow, and you would think it's maybe because he wants to catch the Ohio State-Toledo football game, which many Ohioans will be watching. But nah, 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 he doesn't seem to care about that either, since he scheduled a rally at the same time as the game. With the same ex-president he previously called an idiot and America's Hitler. Now, if you take a listen to what Vance has said in the past, you'll get a better sense of why he might want you to forget about him. This is one of the great tricks that I think the sexual revolution pulled on the American populace, which is this idea that like, well, okay, these marriages were fundamentally, you know, they were, they were maybe even violent, but certainly they were unhappy. And so getting rid of them and making it easier for people to shift spouses like they changed their underwear, that's going to make people happier in the long term. There's something comparable, you know, between abortion and slavery and that you know, while, while the people who obviously suffer the most are those subjected to it, I think it has this morally distorting effect on the entire society. I got to be honest with you, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. I asked Vance if he thought anti-abortion laws should include exceptions for rape or incest. Look, I think two wrongs don't make a right. So to recap, Vance wants you to forget that he thinks women should stay in violent marriages and he couldn't care less about Ukraine, despite Ohio being full of Ukrainian Americans who can vote. Oh, here's another thing old J.D. wants you to forget. He told a right-wing podcast that he supports a national ban on abortion, just like Senator Lindsey Graham. Then he added this part, quote, let's say Roe v. Wade is overruled. Ohio bans abortion in 2022. Let's say 2024. Then every day, George Soros 
sends a 747 to Columbus to load up disproportionately black women to get them to go and have abortions in California. Of course, the left will celebrate this as a victory for diversity. If that happens, do you need some federal response to prevent it from happening? Because it's really creepy. I'm really sympathetic to that, actually. Jordan. Joining me now is Vance the opponent, the Democratic nominee for the United States Senate from Ohio, Congressman Tim Ryan. Um, Congressman, I take it you probably don't agree with the multi-pronged conspiracy theory involving George Soros. You get a little anti-Semitism in there. You get the anti-blackness in there. You get California in there. Do you agree with said conspiracy theory? <laughs> he, he, he has a way of wrapping it all together, doesn't he, Joy? I mean, it's yeah. it's absolutely incredible to think that this guy wants to be in the United States Senate. I mean, generally speaking, you'd say this is a pretty weird guy. Pretty, you know, this is a weirdo, but it's so dangerous. That's the problem that we, we run into today. This guy is not sitting on some barstool somewhere. This guy is actually running for the United States Senate. He has a you know, a bias towards wanting to control. It's control women primarily, whether it's telling them that if they're raped, they have to have the rapist baby. And that woman who had been raped has to take care of that baby. He thinks that's a good idea. No exceptions for rape and incest. You pointed out if you're in a violent marriage and you're being abused, that you should be you should stay in that marriage for family values. I mean, this is so extreme, not to mention that you forgot one one big one that we keep talking about here. This guy started a fake charity to help people with opiates and didn't spend a nickel on anybody. He brought in a spokesperson for Big Pharma, Purdue Pharma, that does nothing but blame addicts. It's not Purdue Pharma. They weren't pushing the pill mills. It's the addicts' fault. It's the people that got hooked. So across the board, this guy is is dangerous and you can't trust him. Yeah, that is the hillbilly elegy, apparently. And yet, and I mean, let's not forget also that Ohio is a state that the abortion issue is extant. There, you know, this was the place where a 10-year-old rape victim had to leave and go to Indiana to get uh, an abortion because she'd been raped. Um, but, but, and yet, and yet, Tim Ryan, the polls have you essentially tied, if you do margin of error, it's, it's J.D. Vance 47, Tim Ryan 44. That's the average. That's the real clear politics average. To, you know, yes, Rob Portman, the incumbent, won by like 20 points. So that's not like a normal Republican, um, you know, spread there. But why do you think he's still getting support? Well, we're continuing to make the argument. I've seen a bunch of polls, too, that have had us up three, five, seven, nine points. Um, so we this is neck and neck. It's going to come down to the wire, which is, of course, we, we're asking everybody uh, for help and support. Go to uh, timforoh.com and, and chip in a few bucks for our campaign. I think people are learning more and more about J.D. Vance, and they're learning that he's dangerous. He's funded by two people. He's funded by a Silicon Valley billionaire. And he's funded by Mitch McConnell. So all of the jobs we've lost, Joy, that you've talked about over the years, as well as I have, he's being funded by the very people who outsourced these jobs, who sent these jobs to China and, and, and made sure that, you know, we didn't have a middle class here in Ohio for such a long period of time. So that's who he's being funded by. That message is starting to stick. We have a lot of Republicans, former Senator Portman, uh, Senator Portman's former chief of staff has endorsed us. Senator Portman's former legislative director has endorsed us. We have a number of Republicans coming on board. So I think over the last 50 days, we're going to close this deal out and we're going to win this race.
Uh, you know, I still remember, I remember coming into uh, to Ohio in 2016 and interviewing a bunch of union uh, workers who, you know, used to be a solidly Democratic group. And they were, you know, that man of steel ad that was literally on local. I watch local news when I get to these states and it was on every minute. This man of steel ad that made Trump sound like the savior of the working man. That worked. How do you win back that 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 union voter that went to Trump? Well, because because J.D. Vance has personally invested into companies that have benefited from outsourcing and jobs uh, in China. J.D. Vance has given up on us. Not only did he leave for California, but he said very directly, if you're a 55-year-old worker in Dayton, Ohio, you need to just come to grips with the fact that you're never going to have a good job again. That's not a kind of person that runs for the United States Senate and wants to fight for somebody's future. So he has no connection to the workers here in Ohio. He says he's not even comfortable in Ohio. He'd rather be drinking wine and eating cheese out in San Francisco and visiting art galleries. These are his words. Um, so I, I'm a scrapper from Ohio. I'm from the Mahoning Valley. I know how to fight. I know how to scrap. This is about our people who have been wrong. They're white. They're black. They're brown. They're men. They're women. They're in manufacturing. They're in service. I'm going to go to the mat for them. We don't need another millionaire in the United States Senate that's funded by billionaires. People are, are, are connecting with this message. They know I'm about Ohio. They know I'm about the future of Ohio. We want to lift everybody up. The more they hear about that, the more they learn about me, uh, the more certain we are that we're going to win this race. And he's, he's probably going to end up moving back to California and drinking wine and eating cheese. <laughs> and crudite, apparently. That's a thing among these, uh, these guys that are running on the other side. That's a thing for them. That's a thing. <laughs> I right. love the crudite. <laughs> Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, who I doubt will be having crudite this weekend. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Who in the week is still ahead. But first... I'm going to be getting my fangirl on with Emmy Award-winning dream girl, Cheryl Lee Ralph. There she is. Hey, Cheryl. Hang on. While we pay for all these lights and cameras, we'll be right back. At this week's Primetime Emmy Awards, one moment stood out as the moment. species but I sing no victim song I am a woman I am an artist and I know where my Yes, that was the amazing, incredible Cheryl Lee Ralph winning her first Emmy on her very first nomination for her role as kindergarten teacher Barbara Howard on the great series Abbott Elementary. It's just a small acknowledgement of her unbelievable career as a screen actress since the 1970s and as a Broadway legend since the 1980s, famously originating the role of Dina Jones in the original Broadway production of Dream Girls. And Cheryl Lee Ralph joins me now. I am so excited. I have to say, I don't know if I'm more excited or my executive producer and my senior producer who are just giddy, giddy, giddy over you being on are more excited. We're all competing to be the most excited. Hello, Soror, and congratulations. <laughs> Hello, Soror, and thank you so much. I, I'm excited. So, you know, for those, for the 
12 people out there who are not caught up on how fabulous you are, I'm going to just play a quick little scan, a quick scan through your incredible career. Oh, my. A job is like a ball team. You don't have to like everybody you play with, but you play with them. Life's not as bad as it may seem if you open your eyes to what's in front of you. Gets up at dawn, runs down to the 7-Eleven, plows through eight guys with squeegees yelling, Yo, baby, can you help a brother out? <laughs> Honey, breakfast isn't half bad. It is the bomb. <laughs> I mean, I, we could have gone on and done a whole hour of that. I mean, but, and, and I have to ask you, you've done so many incredible roles. Um, what has been your very favorite role to play? It has nothing to do with show business. It would be mother to my two children. Second favorite role will be being wife. But that that's the way I look at it. Yeah, yeah. And how do you approach just, you know, the craft of acting and, and embodying all of these different women? Like, what, what, what is your approach? Is Do you do, like, the method act of, of trying to really become this other person? Like, what's your, what is your strategy? I have to tell you, for me, it is very simple. When it is on the page and the connection is right between the characters and myself, they literally come alive. They literally come off of the page and in into me, the vessel, as I'm just going to give them life. And it is as yeah. simple as that for me. Uh, when it's right, I don't have to work at it. I don't have to make it happen. When it's right, it is right. And it's just there. You know, when I yeah. think about designing women and when I played the character Etienne Toussaint Bouvier, Etienne yeah. came to me and that was her voice. And she was just so much love and light and from the South. You know, and then when I played the president of the United States, you know, that was a completely different woman. She didn't smile very much, you know, and she was always about getting the job done. And then there was just Dina Jones, who was basically your musical cheerleader with a velvet yeah. hammer and the voice to match. So it's they literally just come alive themselves. Yeah. Well, this uh, the, the character that you're playing now, I mean, I want to play a little clip. Let me play a very quick uh, clip from Abbott Elementary, which is the role that won you this incredible award. Take a look. We need, we need to just make sure that this is an isolated incident. Yeah. Sweet baby Jesus and the grown one, too. My discs have been dissed. They got you. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is bad. Their fault. They went on a desking promotional tour. There was, a, you know, there were some moments at the Emmys that I think were not as great. The Quinta Brunson moment, which there was an apology from Jimmy Kimmel for. But your moment was transcendent. What were you thinking when you got up there and you did that incredible song? Was it spontaneous? Tell me what you were thinking in that moment. It was as if my whole career just came right across me and around me. And I was standing there with some of the best of my peers. And I was just like, this is the moment. This is your shot right here. Say what you want to say and put your voice where it belongs. And that was it. That was it. Simple. Yeah. Well, you did it. You did it. Well, uh, stick around, uh, everybody, because this is going to be fun. Cheryl is going to stick around. And to help me kick off the weekend, 
with who won the week? You guys are sticking around too, right? We'll be right back in a sec. All right, everybody, TGIF, we made it to the end of another busy week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Ah, yes. Who won the week? Back with me is the great Cheryl Lee Ralph. Cheryl Lee Ralph, who won the week? You know something? I walk the red carpet a lot, and I walk it with my husband, but he won the week this week because he got to the carpet and they said, Senator Hughes, can we get a solo shot? <laughs> Well, well, yes. and there you oh, have it. So yes, in terms of that, Senator Vincent Hughes won the week. <laughs> I love that. That was a wonderful answer. I mean, my husband, I'm not going to let him watch that because then he's going to be on the next red carpet. He's going to be like, hold on a second. Okay, who I believe won the week with, especially with all the people who are so mad about the black uh, Little Mermaid. I say black wow. actresses won the week. Cheryl Lee Ralph, you, incredible. Uh, Quinta Brunson, um, Lizzo, Zendaya, Halle Bailey, all of the great black actresses who are out there doing the damn thing. Won the week. Shirley Ralph, thank you very much. And that is tonight's readout, everybody. Thank you very much, Shirley Ralph. I love you and appreciate you. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.